Welcome Red Cube listeners, you're very welcome to the latest episode uh, of our podcast The Red Cube that deals with all things people and culture and we are delighted to welcome um, from TU Dublin the head of the Graduate Business School, Colin Hughes. Colin, you are very welcome. Thank you, Colin. Delighted to be here. Colin, how are you keeping these strange times? Good, good. We're, we're, we're busy. We're busy building a, a new university and a, relaunching a graduate business school. And uh, great to see staff and, and students continue to return to our, our, our various campuses. So, so all good. A bit of sunshine out there today. So, um, so yeah, the mood is good. Optimism in the air. Good to good good to hear, Colin. For our listeners, you might you might take them through um, sort of your career to date, sort of the role that you're in at the moment, and then kind of take us into the to the research that you've done. I suppose at the moment I'm I'm head of the graduate business school TU Dublin. As I say, we're transitioning at the moment and doing a big reorg, but essentially um, come this September, our new structures will be in place. We've about 45 postgraduate business programs, a large portfolio of executive education programs. We run programs with leading Irish and international organizations and so on. So it's, a, it's quite, a, quite a busy role. Prior to that, I've held a whole bunch of roles over nearly 20 years in TU Dublin or DIT before that, heading up executive education or MBA program and a bunch of other kind of management roles in, in, in different areas and schools like marketing and retail and so on. And um, prior to that, I, I, I did a few different things and I worked in sales for a period in Irish life, uh, had a couple of marketing roles and so on. So, so quite varied, but um, came into TU Dublin, never thought I'd be here this long, but keep changing roles every couple of years. So it keeps me, keeps me interested. Uh, an interesting time for us and an interesting time for, for, I suppose, a lot of the research I've been doing um, in recent years. Yeah, and 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 Colin, the hot topic at the moment, right? So, so you're on trend. I, I never thought you'd be as on trend as you are <laughs> at the moment. But uh, look, the the hot topic, given the experience we've had over the last couple of years, is workplaces and how their way of working for now and the future is going to look. Will it be hybrid, remote, some sort of flexibility? So, share with the listeners your the research that you've done, and uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing about that. Yeah, so a really pivotal point, I suppose, in organizational life and in people's working lives. I think we're seeing that huge shift at the moment, this hybrid paradox, as some people call it, as, as we return to life post-COVID and, and we try and figure out what that blend will look like. And from speaking to a lot of organizations, they're trying to figure out what that blend looks like. And some people have made those decisions and a lot of people are probably waiting, giving a little bit more time. I think the balance to be struck now is the, the expectations of individual employees versus the expectations and needs of, of individual employers. Simon Sinek, your listeners will know quite well, he's, he's famous for the, the why when he talks about purpose and so on. And I, I, I think about the why when you know, as a response that employees will have to many employers when they tell them they have to come in four days a week, right? Because there's been a lot of discussion around this about how productive people have been, how they found new ways of working during COVID when, when asked to work remotely at, at short notice and that their metrics or their performance on many metrics is up. So it, it hasn't worked for every role. And 
I, I think the reality is we're going to see the balance will be will vary based on role type, based on sector or organizational type, but also based on on the individual. Because some people will be happy enough to work almost fully remotely or fully remotely. Other people crave the office environment and the energy that they get from being with people on a daily basis and so on. And then everyone, everyone has a different setup, right? At home, and that can be stage of life. And, you know, if you have young kids running around at home, which I did during COVID, maybe you want to go into the office, but at the same time, it's good to be able to be there and spend some time with the kids, at, you know, during, during the day at break times and, and not have those long commutes. So yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting. It's an interesting time for me. I've done quite a bit of research on on remote working, virtual leadership, hybrid leadership, and so on, uh, pre-pandemic, and then also throughout, like last year and this year, with you know our postgraduate students and some of our industry partners looking at, I, I suppose, feedback around remote working and expectations into the future, and I think. The important thing about that is what I always say to people is, and particularly our students, our postgraduate students, when they're conducting research is, you have to separate remote working during COVID from remote working. And what I mean by that is a lot of the research I've done was conducted pre-COVID. And I suppose when you talk to those people, when I, when I interviewed people, they talk about having this balance and flow in their lives and the work-life balance and really I suppose, being able to leverage the benefits of remote working. And we haven't had as much of that during COVID because what COVID has brought is a huge amount of additional pressure onto organizations and individuals. And also many people had to go and work remotely immediately with you know things like trying to sort out office chairs or screens or equipment and so on. So, so I, think, I, I think you have to separate those things out and look to the future as to okay, knowing what we now know, what, what is the blend and how do we do this thing effectively into the future? Great, Colin. And, and the topic, the title of your PhD, again, remind, remind me what that was. Well, the PhD examined virtual leadership, uh, trust building in virtual uh, leadership. So we're basically an investigation of trust in virtual leader member dyads, essentially. So what, what I looked at was in three tech multinationals, all household names. I looked at people right across EMEA and I did over 40 interviews with employees and leaders. So I was getting both perspectives. So I was trying to understand from an employee perspective, what makes you trust a leader, but also what makes you feel trusted because trust is reciprocal. And there's a saying that trust begets trust. That's a saying that people will be familiar with, but that's also been borne out in more recently in the work of Paul Zak and others in the areas of neuroscience where they've actually measured for things like oxytocin and actually proven that when someone trusts you that it actually causes a spike in oxytocin and, and makes you more, uh, more willing to engage and to trust others. So I looked at the, the leader, the member perspective or employee perspective, and I also looked at the leader's perspective. So what makes you trust individual employees and what makes you feel trusted? By individual employees so that type of dyadic focus and, and getting both perspectives is, is probably rare enough and um, I think it's really important given that reciprocal nature of trust. Fantastic Colin and I know you've developed a practical model that's going to be really useful for companies and leaders around how they how they support leaders right in this remote setting I'm looking forward to, to kind of hearing all about that but one thing that sparked there is is I remember you saying to me um, 
sort of at the start of the pandemic that um, what you're seeing is that low trust leaders. So, so if you're a low trust leader pre-pandemic, that some of those traits are almost being magnified um, in terms of a virtual setting. What, what did you mean by that? There's a great quote and it's attributed to Warren Buffett. And it says, uh, he apparently said, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. Right. And I think the tide went out with COVID. And what I mean by that was overnight, all leaders or mostly that became remote leaders. And I think remote leaders really have to double down on the levels of support they give to employees and the engagement and the the clarity of expectations and all of these different things. And from all of the virtual leaders I've spoken to and, you know, spoken to really experienced virtual leaders and hybrid leaders in advance of COVID, they will tell you that you need to be more intentional when you're a remote leader in showing people that you care, in supporting people, and you need to be much more reflective. So I love that quote because I think it really kind of shines a light on the fact that um, it shows how good of a leader you are when you're in a remote setting in many ways. Yeah, and in many ways, the cream is rising right yeah. to the top, perhaps, right? Um, and, you know, from having conversations out there with organizations as they think about their new way of working, a real concern that's there, Colin, is, is, is they're thinking about their leadership group, right, or their management population, and they are concerned, worried, wondering how they can support them in terms of this virtual leadership piece, right? And I think that brings us on nicely to the SOAR model, which you have developed, the S, the O, the A, and the OR. And uh, Colin, maybe let's take us through the, 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 the SOAR model. Yes, okay, great. And I think before I do, I'll make the point, I think that I think pre-COVID, most people probably assume that managing people remotely was the same as managing people sitting beside you in the office. And as I say, very experienced virtual leaders have said to me that that's absolutely not the case. And whilst a very, very strong leader probably will be a very strong leader in a remote setting, it does require a level of effort that goes beyond maybe leading in, a, in, a office, in an office environment, I suppose. That doesn't tend to be differentiated you know, when people complete leadership training or orientations and so on within organizations. So I think that's that's important to note. And I think that's something we need to focus on in organizations going forward. So what is the SOAR model? So the SOAR model, I suppose, listen, with all of these models, if you develop a model, it has to be a little bit catchy, a little bit corny. Um, so the SOAR model is kind of based on the premise that, you know, build trust and your relationships will soar. Quite easy, it's eight leadership behaviors of hybrid leaders so each each letter has two behaviors so the first one s and um, the first one is support and really the findings of my research show that really strong hybrid leaders are employee centric leaders so that's a term that i've kind of coined that i like in that they're really focused on the individual employees both personally and professionally so from a personal level we saw a lot of that during covid we saw a lot of good leaders stand up and check in with people, see how they are on a personal level, knowing that, you know, they might be feeling a bit isolated or, you know, they might be sick or have family members sick and so on. So really strong 
hybrid leaders do that quite quite naturally and they're empathetic and empathy is something that doesn't come natural naturally to everyone but it's something that if it doesn't you kind of have to work on i have a posted here in front of me on my screen in my office here at home that says uh, check in with people right and, and and that's just when you're really busy it's just to remind me to to check in and see how people are doing so I think that on the personal level I think as well that would encompass the fact that people particularly at the early stage of careers or early stage of working in new organizations may feel quite vulnerable there's a settling in period when you don't have your manager on site or you know in person you'll have a ton of questions that's only natural but you, you need that level of support and you need someone maybe checking in to tell you that it's okay that you have lots of questions or putting some support structures in place with people locally or other people to check in or a buddy or whatever it might be so that's that's support on a personal level on a professional level this is a really interesting one so i mentioned being an employee centric leader what really good leaders do is they adopt a coaching style of leadership. Um, so they're not necessarily qualified coaches. But what I mean by that is they don't tell people how to do everything. They give them space to make some mistakes. They give them the broad parameters and, and that helps them to develop. So that's part of their development in terms of figuring things out for themselves. So they're there when they need them. They're available when they need them. But they give them things to work on and they give them that space and I found a really, some really fascinating examples in my own research over the last few years where very good virtual leaders actually went out on a limb to give people a platform within their organization. So what I mean by that is, you know, where people that were working remotely, fully remotely in some cases, they reached out to other leaders in the organization and said, hey, you need to talk to Cahill. Cahill's on my team and he's an absolute expert in podcasting. Right. So you need to you, you need to talk to Cahill. So what they were doing there is giving them a platform and giving them a visibility within the organization, which would help their career progression. Just on that, comment, that's that's really interesting, right, because often our tendency is to just focus on our own job, our own team. Right. Um, but, but what I love about that is 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 we're encouraging leaders to is, is it to promote their team members throughout the business or how do you see that? Yeah, it's, 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 it's really having, this may or may not happen kind of organically, depending on the leader, but I think, you know, cleverly organizations maybe put that into, you know, performance reviews and, and, and so on, where, where, where they look at how well their leaders develop, the people that report to them. It, I saw the extreme of this in my research where some leaders actually spoke with with people that reported them and the person said you know i want to move on i want to move to a different role and despite in some cases in sales teams and i remember one particular situation where the person brought the their their team member to dinner with this other senior colleague and said listen this person he's a great guy he wants to move on you might have an opening or if you don't would you consider him right and made that happen even though it left him with a massive hole in his team target if you like because he was such a good performer and I said well that's a really interesting thing it's quite selfless and he said well that's your job as a leader what like what people don't realize is that it's not just about doing it's not being a manager it's not about you know making sure everything's running smoothly and effectively if you're if you're going to step into that leadership role it's about developing talent for the future there, there's an old saying that sign up a good leader isn't creating more followers a good leader creates more leaders 
And I think we really saw that being born out there. So I think that was a couple of really great examples of that kind of professional support. So support is the first S and a huge, a huge kind of category of management behaviors there. The second S is simply showing people that you trust them. So this might sound quite simple, right? But because of the reciprocal nature of trust, which I mentioned before, people feel from your behaviors, from your demeanor, from how you engage with them and interact with them versus how you engage and interact with some of their team members, right? So, so people pick these things up. They get a sense of how, how you trust them. And I probed for this quite a bit in my own research and I continue to do this. And I ask people, what, what does that mean? How, you know, how do they show you? And in some cases they tell them, right? Or in other cases they say, we'll start this relationship on the basis of trust. Um, I will trust you unless you give me a reason not to trust you. Right. And even that level of openness in some of those discussions actually goes a long way in building a relationship. Then they go about proving that in a variety of different ways. And I'm going to come to some of them now with, with some of the other letters. So the two S's just to just to summarize our support and show people that you trust them. Support and show, Colin. It's interesting there that because we think of trust as this intangible thing. Right. But people actually can feel it, I think, which is interesting. Let, let's have a look at the O then. Yeah, so openness is the first, though. Openness was one of the, has been one of the main themes that comes up in my research when I talk to people about trust. Openness does two things. Openness suggests to others that you are a trustworthy individual. If you're willing to share information, speak openly, you're not being guarded, you're not being evasive, you're not hiding things, and so on. But openness does a second thing in that it sends a message to people that you're willing to confide in them. You're willing to share information with them, which may be sensitive. You're willing to be open, which highlights to them that, to my previous point, that you trust them. So openness is incredibly important in relationships. And a lot of my research and a lot of the really high trust diets, they started with that level of openness. I remember, remember one where a very experienced sales rep said to um, quite a senior sales leader that he, was en he ended up reporting to, he said at the very start, listen, I've been in the industry about 30 years. I've had all sorts of different leaders, all sorts of different managers. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll be a really good team member for you. I just need you to be honest with me. I need you to be open with me so that we can have that relationship. If I do something wrong, tell me. Don't beat around the bush. Just tell me straight away. I'm a, I'm a big boy. I can take that feedback. And that relationship just started because they were two quite open people. I interviewed the leader as well. That relationship just started there and just got stronger and stronger as a result. I did come across other relationships that I, I had a really good example, for instance, of, of a new leader who, who stepped into a role and his, his, one of his employees told me, he said um, he was in the role, he visited our office, never came to see me. Do you know, I'd been in the role maybe two weeks and small enough team, no engagement. So I had to reach out to, to him and say, you know, what's happening here? You know, um, did you know I was in the office, right? So, um, so th those initial interactions with people, I think, can be can be quite crucial. So openness is 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 a really really important leadership behavior. The other O is other people consider other people's disposition. So what I mean by that is. We are all along a continuum of trusting disposition. Some of us are really high trusters and we trust people, you know, emphatically and 
immediately and sometimes to our detriment, right? So you can, you need to be smart, as Stephen Covey says, um, smart trust. Others are quite cynical and maybe they've been burnt in the past and they trust nobody, right? And we probably all know those people. So there's a conspiracy behind everything and everything is a negative outlook and, and so on. The majority of us are probably somewhere in between those polar opposites, if you like. Now, I found in one of the studies I did, I found three dispositional profiles, if you like, right? So I asked two questions about disposition. So I asked them, do you think people are generally trustworthy? Just generally, do you think people are trustworthy? The second question is, when you meet someone for the first time, do you A, trust them straight away, B, distrust them, C, wait to see, wait for more information, right? So I kind of figured out there's three profiles of people. One is people aren't generally trustworthy, so therefore I don't trust them straight away. So they will be our low trusters. The next one is, yes, people are generally trustworthy, so I trust them straight away. So that's the opposite of that. The third one is people aren't generally trustworthy, but I do trust people in this organization straight away. Right, so that's an interesting one that, no, I don't think people are trustworthy in general, but the culture in this organization or the type of people that we hire in this organization or the sanctions, either culturally, behaviorally, or, you know, or something else are such that people behave in a trustworthy manner within this organization. Or in some cases, hey, it's, it's such a, a fast paced environment. You kind of have, you've no choice, right? You kind of have to trust them and move on. But, but again, I, I think the culture underpins that because, you know, they very quickly, they do that once. And if they, you know, if that was a negative outcome, they wouldn't do it again right so so there's that third trusting profile that probably needs a little bit more unpacking and that probably for your for your listeners in terms of creating great workplaces and great cultures that really kind of i suppose supports the idea of you know getting that cultural fit you know hiring people that are hiring for values and things and not just for performance if you like and you know making sure that that you then also have a culture that people fit into where people know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Yeah, and, and hiring for trust almost as well, right? Because people yeah. have a different level in terms of their propensity to trust or not. That example you shared, Colin, that came up from your research where the individual talked about how the manager had come and, she, and, and he or she had visited the other team members but never came to visit me, right? So, so one of the things that's coming out in terms of a concern for workplaces is that leaders will now have some people who are physically in the office with them perhaps and some people within their team who are in a virtual yeah setting. that's going is that going to be an issue do you think going forward or hugely challenging um there's a lot of research on this there's decades of research on trust in remote teams what, what you tend to get in some cases is this us versus them and um, so so what you can have is you can have a multitude of different options with all of this so you can have a leader based in an office with, you know, some members of the team in that office. And then you can have other members of the team either in, let's say, a regional office or working from home and so on. So let's take the example where you have half the team co-located with the leader and half the team in a, in a regional office, which I've had, an overseas office, which I've had in my research. And um, there is that very much that us versus them. And there's a perception, whether, whether realized or otherwise, um, that the people that are co-located with the leader are, are building really strong relationships. They're having coffee with each other the whole time. They're having lunch with each other the whole time. 
And that's not always the case, right? But that can be the perception. And that, as one person said to me, I'm here in, in Austria, that person's based in Dublin with, with the leader. He gets to take one person with him through the organization in terms of his favorite mentee, if you like. Is that going to be me who he sees once a year? Or is that going to be that other person who he has lunch with a couple of times a, a week or a month? You know, so th there are those perceptions. And there's also things around just individuals then working by themselves at home and then feeling maybe a little bit isolated and, and disconnected. So good virtual leaders are, are deep reflectors. And we'll come to that a bit later. But they're aware of these issues and even coming down to the, the situation where they say, OK, you folks that are co-located in an office together, don't come on a team call all on the one screen. Do it from your own PCs. Like it's simple things like that, right? That that kind of even creates the optics of that everyone everyone has an individual voice in this, and it's not us versus this big team, and they look like they're all having the crack in in the office there, and you know we're we're isolated. There's there's gonna have to be a real consciousness, I think, on the part of leaders when they think about the makeup of their team, their own situations, and like the nuances there are really important, even people coming together on that one screen, right? And how that's perceived, if you like. So we, we've got the S and the O. So we're on, we're, we're on to A. The first A is, is ability. In my research, in, in most of my research, the, the leaders were, were seen to be quite capable and you know high levels of ability based on their experience and, and so on. That's not always going to be the case in terms of leadership ability. And I think what you tend to have in many organizations and you know, organizations are more sophisticated these days in how they do this, but someone's a good individual contributor and they get promoted to a management uh, leadership role um, because of that. Now, that's an issue because leadership is a very different thing. If leadership is employee centric and it's, and it's about being selfless in many ways, if you take your, your, your best individual salesperson who is knocking it out of the park in terms of sales targets and make them a sales manager, you're doing two things. You may be taking away their individual target and their individual sales skills and, and that type of thing. And then putting them in charge of a, a group of people who maybe they have no interest in being a people manager, a sales leader, but that was the only logical career path for them. Now people can earn very good money in sales. So, you know, so that, that's not always the case, but look at that. Like that's just a sales example, but look at that in every different type of role. Right. So, I think we, we need to be recruiting people with leadership potential and we need to be fostering that. We need to be giving them very strong guidance and support and training and development and so on and giving them that room to grow. But uh, I, th I think that's something that not every organization gets right. The, the big ability piece that, com that comes up when you talk about hybrid leadership is your ability to communicate effectively. And that includes things like being able to set clear expectations you know you might not have the opportunity to tell the people a second time right so if people are you're not seeing them in the office right and being able to maybe clarify things really smoothly or quickly so so you have to clarify expectations you have to be very clear in terms of the ask and the and the communication you also have to be able to leverage multiple forms of communication and know when to use different forms of communication so whether it's using instant messaging for very quick queries to emails for a communication blast or an information blast to a group chat with the video on for 
a team call or an individual chat or whether it's a face-to-face kind of in person and how do you leverage the benefits of that and I think about this quite a lot now I schedule my days at home very differently to how I schedule my days in the office so what I mean by that is the things that I'm not as, as comfortable with or as effective with at home so things like creativity and brainstorming I have a massive whiteboard in my office when I'm in the office I try and have meetings with people and get in front of that board and tease certain things out I like to connect with people buy them a coffee you know have catch up with people uh, when I'm in the office so I, I, ta- I try and schedule my day very differently than my at home days where I'm probably still guilty of packing in 100 meetings a day you know back to back teams or resume calls so i think good leaders are very good at figuring out how they get the blend with individuals so i need to catch up a call every x period maybe in a in a in person if you like whereas other people are very comfortable with the the virtual piece and they might need to meet us as often so for instance if you differentiate between a new hire you might need to go and visit them a lot more or see them in the office a lot more versus a very seasoned person who's very comfortable with the remote working. It's been working that way for years. And every now and again, you'll meet them, but you'll really use that time, that valuable time. You talked about the channels there, Colin, which is interesting. And I often I often wonder, like, who's listening, right? I know a couple of organizations we, we spoke to over the last few weeks and um, there's a heavy reliance on emails and every email seems to have urgent um, yeah, written yeah. on it. And if, I wonder if everything is urgent, like is, is, is anything urgent, you know? Yeah, e- email is a great tool, but I have to say I kind of hate email as well. Um, I've grown to hate it because it, it's very difficult. Like the volume of emails are insane. And I don't know, like I'm sure most people are, are, are similar. You know, on a daily basis, I'm getting emails from colleagues, students, bosses, partners in industry, um, graduates. Like it, it, it just, you know, sales emails and all sorts of different things. It, it's, it's nonstop. And it, again, even just, even if you're effective at managing those and you do your little four Ds, time management, you do it or date activated or deleted or delegated or any of those things, even to do all of that still with a huge volume of emails, that still takes a lot of time. So I know people are moving to other channels and a lot of organizations move different, use different types of platforms and so on. Um, but what I found is like good, good collaboration tools are really important. And that, that feeling of support from people, I mentioned support being really crucial. People need to feel that their, their leader is, is available. You know, that notion of perceived proximity is really important in virtual kind of working arrangements. So if I'm stuck on something, I know you're busy, Cahill, and you're my you're my manager. Can you just, I'm going to send you a quick WhatsApp or a quick IM. Can you just give me a green light on something? Or can you give me, can we jump on a call for literally five minutes and give me your perspective on something? They're the things that sometimes people need either permission for something or a bit of um, objective thinking around something, a bit of advice. That's interesting. So the perceived proximity piece, Colin, is, is what, what are you doing? You're bridging the gap between kind of um, that sense of maybe distance that people feel. Is it and good leaders are aware of this? Yeah. So, so perceived proximity talks about this whole notion of how, how, how proximate or how close you think someone is or they feel. And I, I remember reading an article a number of years ago. I, I can't remember the author, but they, they talked about virtual leaders or remote leaders needing to 
it needs to feel to employees like that leader is down the, the hallway so that when I need you, I can get to you. I think in making yourself available and making that effort for people, you're actually sending a clear message to them that you're here to support them. Instead of just saying, oh, I'm too busy. I'm sorry, I'll get back to you when I can. Do you know, like if you're if you're really taking your leadership role seriously, well, then you'll you'll make time and you'll you'll get back to them and support them because they have a roadblock and they need you to help them through that. That's great, Colin. And the, the second part of the A then, so we had we had ability. The second part is, is one of my favorites. The second part is autonomy. And to me, micromanagement is the death of trust in many ways, right? And autonomy talks, I talked about this a little bit already, give people space to make mistakes, to take risks, to allow that level of vulnerability. Um, like don't tell them how to do a task, ask them to do a task and let them in some ways come up with their way of doing it. Obviously in a sensible way, right? Depending on the task, but given that level of autonomy, anyone I know personally, professionally, that enjoys their role has a fair bit of autonomy in their role. And I think it's curious to see during COVID with heightened levels of remote working, we're seeing a lot of tracking software and, and things like that. And there's an interesting relationship between trust and control. And there's been, again, decades of research on this. And I, I think the, the research falls down in favor of this complementary kind of view of trust and control. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. You can have certain controls and certain controls can help people trust them because there's a safety net, if you like. But then also levels of trust then means that explaining certain controls is easier as well and justifying them. So I think there is a balance to be struck there, but I'm not so naive to think you need no controls in relationships or organizations. But I definitely think autonomy is, is so, so important. And any of the low trust relationships that I've, that I've examined, that I've uncovered in my research are ones where there's those levels of micromanagement and you know where are you at with this and tell me tell me tell me you know give me an update give me an update but no how can I help you get this to the next stage and the next level you know so that's a very different type of discussion the last thing I'd say on that is more hands-on management is acceptable I find or I have found if it's explained so if someone's very new in their career I've had some leaders that have said to people I'm going to be quite hands-on with you for the first couple of weeks or whatever until you're at a stage where you're comfortable and I'm comfortable that you'll start taking on more and more autonomy. So it's like, it doesn't have to be, you know, zero to a hundred with autonomy on day one, but I think the employees need to understand the approach you're taking. And similarly where people have made mistakes or are struggling with something, the leader might say, right, I'm going to step in. We're going to work through this together. I'm going to be a bit more hands-on. But that's explained to people. And I think once that's explained, I think, well, then a little bit more hands-on management is okay. That's that's interesting, right? So so conscious leaders, like there's there's always opportunities and moments to allow for autonomy to take place. And I think being conscious of that is, is important, right? And then on the second piece, then what I, what I thought was really interesting was actually good leadership, you're almost contracting with your employees and your team members to say, look, at this particular moment, I'm going to be this type of way. We're going to work on this together, um, whether it's you're a new employee or not. So I think that contracting piece is, is really important. Um, and then that takes us on to the or 
Okay, and the ores, again, I'll be, we've mentioned some of these things and I'll, I'll be quick on these. There's two ores again. One is reliability, right? And that goes to promise fulfillment and so on. And I've mentioned this, some of this can be, you know, supports and so on. If you, if you promise something to do something on behalf of an employee, for instance, or help them with something or to get back to them with something and so on, it's about fulfilling those promises. And I think we can all be, guilty of not getting back to people on time i know certainly i can because something happens the day gets away from you and you might think oh sure listen that's one of a hundred tasks i had to do today but for that individual employee that's incredibly important for them because it was only one task you were doing for them right so again it, it, it's just being conscious of the impact of maybe not being able to get back to people and what i found on that for me personally it's about managing expectations and managing my time and diary and you know not trying to shoehorn things in and being a bit more realistic to say I'm not going to get to you this week but I'll definitely make time to do it next week you know so it's it's that type of thing reliability can also be a lot of those promises can be about helping people clear roadblocks maybe in complicated global organizations about you might need to step in because I'm having a difficulty with the team in x country and I'm getting no traction with them. So you might have to step in as someone more senior and, and make this happen or have a word with someone. So there could be a bunch of different things there, but, but employees rely on their, their, their line managers and their leaders like a lot. So it's, it's being reliable. The second or we've mentioned is to be reflective um, and a reflective leader. And I, I've mentioned this already, so I won't dwell on it, but Good virtual leaders, I think, spend a lot of time reflecting on the needs of those remote employees and understanding what it is that they need at any given time and what might be happening on the ground that I'm not aware of. And is there additional supports? Is it time for a face to face? Is there any, you know, all of those things? And coming back to when was the last time I had a coaching conversation with them or a developmental conversation with them and those things don't always happen as naturally on on zoom calls you know so I, I remember someone phrasing this really beautifully in my own research they talked about the leader going beyond the agenda focused nature of video calls so going beyond the agenda and really um having those kind of more personal conversations and more connected conversations and again that's something that leaders will reflect on and say when is the last time i had one of those conversations so so yeah i think good virtual leaders in summary are are highly reflective would you like me to summarize the very quickly so the soar is support and show them you trust them the o is openness and consider the other person's disposition how, how willing they are to trust the point on that is really consider their disposition i probably didn't make that point is that what that means is you might be doing all of the right things and it might simply take you more time to build trust with somebody because they have a low disposition. So that was the point I probably failed to mention there. So apologies for that. The two A's are ability, ability to communicate really and to make yourself available and autonomy um, and be careful with the controls and the micromanagement. And the two R's are reliability and reflection. 
Yeah, and, and, and that's great, Colin. And actually, I think it's okay to structure reflection. Like you, you made a point there about the post-it note you have on your screen, which is a reminder oh, yeah. to reach yeah. out to people. That's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, absolutely, that's absolutely fine. And I know we, we sort of made a little joke about the acronym, but like in an age where everyone is busy and there's lots of information, you know, coming from all over the place, a useful model like that is, can be so powerful in terms of for managers and, and leaders. Can I just ask you, Colin, about, um, you know, often we find ourselves talking to leaders in workplaces where, you know, an incident has happened and trust has been damaged. Um, you, you know, it's, it often happens within workplaces, right? Um, there's then a fear or a worry or a concern, well, can we ever rebuild? Any thoughts around trust repair? Is it possible? Um, can it be done? Yeah, great question. There's a growing body of research on, on trust repair and it's not as much as there is on kind of trust building models, if you like. But there are a couple of kind of useful frameworks and tips. All I can say on that really, or maybe the most beneficial thing is that I found a bunch of instances of trust repair in my research to date. I found instances where trust was really, really low or in fact, there was distrust in the relationship. The research distinguishes between the two. So having low trust is maybe having a low level of low willingness to, to be vulnerable to somebody, low level of confidence, some people will say. Having a level of distrust in someone is having actually negative views towards them. So I, I found very, very weak trust or distrust relationships have, can and have been rebuilt. I'll give you a great example of this, actually, just to finish off. One of the leaders I spoke to in my study talked about uh, a guy that, that reported to him. He felt that he was a little bit inappropriate in the office. He was a little bit unprofessional. He had some concerns. He'd had a kind of a chat or two subtly with him, but nothing seemed to land. And they were on a train traveling through Europe and going to meet a client the next day to do this really important presentation. So on the train, the, the, the leader asks them, listen, can I have a look at the deck for tomorrow? Just want to have a glance over it. And the, the guy told him, I don't have it done. So this was it. This was the last straw for the leader who said, right, that's it. It's the last straw. We're going to have to have a really serious conversation when we get back to the office. I can't work with you. I can't trust you. So I had this really open conversation and kind of a blowout. So anyway, the leader stayed up all night getting the deck ready. They did the pitch the next day. That was grand. They were back in the office anyway, and the next week they, they had a chat and the employee came to him and said, listen, I re I've reflected on this. I realize now that I haven't been, I haven't been approaching things right. I've been unprofessional, I've been so on. And by the time, by the time that leader left the business, like a couple of years later, that person had become his trusted lieutenant, if you like, and was, was then in a position to, I suppose, step into his shoes and to replace him right so he had grown that much in his own thinking and his own level of professionalism and his own self-awareness but th there's a bunch of examples like that and we might talk about some again but I, I think there's a common theme to trust repair that I found in my research and that is there's a critical incident each time and that critical incident tends to be some form of a blowout or a really really open conversation where where people are very open with each other and tell them why they have an issue and what has brought them here and how they're feeling and so on. And I think that openness paves, paves the way for trust repair. 
the challenge we have in many, many organizations and many relationships is that people aren't always willing to be that open and to have that open conversation, that difficult, awkward, challenging conversation. So the relationships never really get repaired. Yeah, it can be a moment, right? So trust, perhaps trust needs a moment and it needs an, an open conversation, an honest conversation. And from that, then things can move forward because look, often what we see is the difficult conversations are the ones that don't happen, right? Yeah. Um, for, for, for whatever reason. Colin, that's, that's really great stuff. I think the SOAR model is going to be such a useful tool for leaders out there. Just to get to know Colin a little bit more, we'll call this the rapid fire round. I usually would ask, is it Netflix or TV for Colin? But actually, I probably now have to ask, is it Netflix, Disney Plus, Prime, Amazon? Um, what else have I missed? Um, all of these streaming platforms or TV, what's your preference of choice? I can safely say I think we have a subscription to every one of those <laughs> with young children. And any show that you recommend that you're listening to at the moment? What am I watching at the moment? Um, I've just watched Jack Reacher on Amazon, the Lee Child uh, series of, of books. They've, they've made it into a, a, new, uh, a new series, a short series. So I watched that. It was quite good. I like a bit of drama, detective type um, books and action so that was good very good bit of a mystery to it there's no yeah. dragons in it i don't i don't watch things no dragons. no dragons okay find it very hard to watch a dragon <laughs> um any recommended reads books that you've really enjoyed I, I i read a couple of books i read recently i reread the chimp paradox steve peters uh but that was a particularly good book uh, any of the daniel kahneman books so i've just got his new one i haven't read it but his his old one thinking fast and slow is particularly good book I, I've just obviously I spent a huge amount of time doing a PhD and a huge amount of reading so I've been trying to catch up on more casual reading lately probably shouldn't admit that but uh, I've a whole library of trust books as well for anyone that uh, wants any recommendations uh, you've had some heavy reading there so it's back to Rodal now and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and some light reads very very short books are, are kind of <laughs> favorite at the moment very good. Colin, um, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thanks, Carl. Really enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. Red Cube listeners, thank you very much for joining us today. Please subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already done so. And of course, leave us a review and tell us what topics would you like us to cover.